Tell me what you see. I see a ceiling painted light blue, vaulted high above me. All around are large, multi-height windows set above my eye level, but allowing light to pour in. People hustle and bustle every which way, suitcases roll, heels click. People check their watches and start running. Every few minutes, the floor rumbles a little bit. In the center of it all is a circular desk with four-sided clock sitting above it. Besides the Taurus, everyone is moving fast. Where are we? Grand Central Station in New York City. Welcome to What Builds Us, a podcast that uncovers the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and day-to-day lives. I'm Brian. And I'm Chantel. And this week, we're continuing our conversation around interior public spaces, focusing on spaces around the world that we know really well versus ones that we discovered last week in Boston. Yeah, so I wanted to start the episode with uh, with a description of Grand Central. Not that we actually went there, even though we, I think we've both been there. Yeah, exactly. But uh, because it's a really iconic space, I think everyone can, you know, picture kind of exactly what it looks like, whether you've seen it in person or just from a postcard or a movie or something. And it uh, is kind of a super focused example of the spaces we're talking about. It's almost like hyper public. It It's interior, but is almost an extension of the sidewalk. And what's so cool about Grand Central Station is it kind of embodies the, the three topics that we're going to talk about today. So three different forms of this idea of privately versus publicly owned spaces and different ways that the two come together. Um, So we have privately owned, privately focused spaces. We have privately owned, publicly focused spaces. And then we have publicly owned, publicly focused. So what does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think to me it, 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 the kind of key part of that is that there's two, you know, there's, there's two parts to each phrase. There's who owns it, right? Who has like legitimate legal control, which, you know, entitles them to, kind of do a, a variety of things and say who and who can and can't be there to a uh, you know varying degree based on who owns it and it also implies who they see as their you know in some places it's their customer in other it's who the public is and in one sense kind of in both it's who their community is who belongs there that's kind of the key part of that second half yeah and what's important about that is that's what ties together a lot of these aspects that we've talked about before of power and control and identity and where you feel empowered and where you feel like you can mess around with the space and where you feel like you're a guest is based off who owns it and who it's for. And sometimes that's more clear than others. And sometimes I think that we don't even understand or realize that a space might be privately owned when it because it's so well played off as a public space. Like you're in it and you're existing and it feels really free, but at the same time, there are a lot of restrictions somehow on it. And that's where those lines of like, I don't know, advertisements and stuff can get really blurry, but that's why it's cool to explore. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of times when people, especially who own private spaces, like people who own, say, like a, a grocery store, they see their, you know, I don't think they would tell anyone to, to not come in, right? They're to like, turn people away. Your, I don't care who you are, just yeah. give us your money. <laughs> yeah, you can buy cereal from us. Everyone loves cereal. <laughs> I really love cereal. They do love cereal. <laughs> uh, so, like, they, they see their public as, like, almost anybody. But just by the fact that they own the building, they set the rules, they set the hours, they're excluding and including some people more than others. Yeah. So I think the most important thing right before we go into this 
you know, review, I guess, in a sense of what we're about to start talking about and uncovering is that this is not a comprehensive review. This is like places predominantly that Brian and I have been to and are talking about with each other. And it's not the perfect examples or the only examples by far of these types of spaces. So through all of it, we want to encourage you to keep your mind open and think about maybe how some of the spaces that we're talking about reflect places that you've been. Yeah, there's lots and lots and lots of places that have amazing interior public space in this country, around the world, in non-Western places, in non-predominantly white places. And Chantal and I just for the most part haven't had the opportunity to go there. But if you have and you know them well, we really would love to hear about them. Yeah, so you should tag us, post about it, talk about it, think about it, anything. It's <laughs> on that social media. Yeah. And what's cool about this conversation is that we are actually moving out of Boston as opposed to last week we discovered and went to a lot of places in during the episode with Ivan, who was great. And this week we are talking about places that we've actually been to together or separately um, in other countries, in different parts of this country. And so we're being a little bit more crazy this week than we were last week. <laughs> so we're going to spend the episode talking about interior public spaces. And a lot of the time when people talk about places like that, uh, they they reference the theory of third places. So we've talked about this just a little bit in previous episodes, mostly in episode three. So the idea of a third place was a term and idea kind of coined by this guy, Ray Oldenburg, sociologist and researcher. It's the idea that in your life, your home is your first place, your work is your second place, and the social space that fills the gap between those two things is your third place. So he thought of third places really as anchors of community. He, he really saw them as a way for people to come together outside of the home, but without the restrictions of work in, in a way that could, you know, increase social bonds and build community. Oftentimes those places were interior. Um, Starbucks often likes to claim to be places, uh, you know, a third space. Or something. Really? Yeah. Not like publicly, but when you look at like their, their mission statement and like their core values, that's how they see themselves. America's it's like you could come here and like have a cup of coffee and see your neighbor and like yeah. chat about the PTA and stuff, you know. About the PTA. So a lot of the idea about third places is about kind of how you, how at home you consider yourself outside of your home and again, how, how comfortable you can be. And a lot of people have thought about the degrees to which you you can be comfortable. I agree. And I think a lot of how we see ourselves and how we identify with ourselves is reflected in how we change space and how we find ourselves associating with space. And to go along with what you just brought up, I during my thesis, I was researching this guy a lot. Um, I'm going to totally butcher his name, but I my best attempt is that his name is Friedrich, Friedrich, Friedrich Hundedwasser. I love when we reference uh, European names. It's like I have the utmost respect, but at the same time... We just don't speak German. I just don't speak German. And I wish I could. I wish I could give it more worth than I am because he's incredible. And he has such a cool mind, too. He explained this phenomenon as having everybody having five skins. So the first layer was your epidermis, like your physical skin. And then your second layer was your clothes. Your third layer was your house. The fourth layer was your identity and how you associated with people, kind of like the space in between two people. And then the fifth layer was the earth itself. So it was like everything. So it was more of, I think, 
a universal like scale, scale. you know, it's a much larger scale, but it made me think of that similar concept and like how people really do think of architecture in these third spaces, like your home versus the spaces that you share with others as being just as much a part of your identity as your clothes or your skin. Yeah, I would totally think that the the third place fits into your idea of your fourth skin of that, how you relate to other people, your idea of what that skin is totally changes. Yes, exactly. So this this uh, people have written lots and lots about this guy's idea, uh, including the super famous book is Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. Uh, we'll reference a lot more links in the blog, but we just wanted to kind of lay this out here as a kind of a base understanding for how people think about the dynamics of public space. I like that idea of bowling alone, like like going to a very public place by yourself i don't know i just hadn't thought of that ever yeah i mean he spends the whole book like kind of expounding on what that metaphor is and what that idea is but it is powerful wow so the way that brian and i approached this episode was basically kind of researching these very specific places that we wanted to talk and why we wanted to talk about them and i couldn't let go of this one place that both of us have been to that has when i visited it it was the coolest place I had ever been and every single time I go to Amsterdam I want to go back and I did go back and I brought my friend Molly and I we rented bikes and rode around it and I showed her so many parts of it and it's just so cool like whether or not an event is happening or it's not it is somehow filled with character and liveliness just because of the way that it's been created so the place that I'm talking about is called NDSM Wharf it's in the Netherlands it's in Amsterdam it's in Amsterdam North and even more specifically there's this place called Plek I think (laughs) again not really good at Dutch but (laughs) it's spelled P-L-L-E-K Plek and it's a restaurant that's in this area and it's right on the water and what's so interesting about it is there's so many aspects of this whole NDSM wharf area that was created with shipping containers and when we first approach it there's kind of this giant sign outside it also sort of looks ambiguous like it looks like you're just in this yeah cuz it storage yard yeah cuz the area used to be a big like functional shipping port yeah there's there's um shipping containers everywhere it's actually really known for having this very specific there's also cranes everywhere and there's this very specific crane that is also a hotel and you see these boxes that are in it yeah and i think you can bungee jump off the top which is pretty crazy so definitely look into that if that interests you at all but so it has that scale of like big wide spaces yeah and also very strange construction so especially as someone who's not from amsterdam and is very unfamiliar with the space walking into it is wild and there's this place called peck there's all these arrows to it and you walk into this shipping container that has all these plastic drapes almost like you're going into a meat factory type of thing and then you're walking you push through those and there's all these all the walls are covered in stickers and and like spray paint and you're kind of freaked out and you're like walking through it and then there's this door and it opens up to this incredible restaurant and when we went it was filled with people and it was right on the beach and you basically walk through the bar past all the tables and the entire front wall is opened up and there's this incredible light going out. There's the ocean right there. Everyone's in their bathing suit. There's all this music playing and it's just like I walked in and my mind was blown. I was like, where, <laughs> literally, where am I? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a place that like we talked about, it's, it's a restaurant, it's a private restaurant, but it fits into this much larger urban concept and, and urban design that Chantel was talking about. 
and it's very catered towards a certain public, towards people like us, uh, but also to locals and, and people who, you know, especially when we were there in the summer, it feels very much like people are contributing to the feel of the space. Yeah, and this whole NDSM wharf atmosphere is brought together through every single, this idea of every single night, there's a different crowd, there's a different event, there's a different atmosphere, there's a club that's in one of the spots, and every single night of the entire year, there's a different themed dance night so it's like some nights it's country and sometimes some nights it's techno and it it just goes crazy and it's just for whoever wants to embrace this space and that exists even when the people aren't there what's interesting is throughout the whole ndsm wharf there's just different kinds of private public spaces in it because yeah like plec is very specifically a privately owned restaurant that public can use but then there's also aspects where people can just run around and do whatever and the last place that i want to talk about that's in it is just this giant i'm not even sure warehouse type of thing there's just a whole open space used to be a warehouse and artists can just rent out truly like a cube of space yeah it might be i don't know 150 square feet or something very small and you can build whatever you want in it so whether or not that's a very loose structure that has things hanging in it that you paint on or if it's an entire room that you build because you want to have band practice there or if it's because you just want to store your bike and i'm sure some people live there probably like it's so unique and anybody can go and walk around and look at these places you can explore all of it and it's free for anybody to explore but yet all these different people are coming together and using it as their creative space. And it's so interesting to just see how many people come, how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people obviously exist in this so constantly in such different ways and watching it all come together. It's just, I don't know, I was super inspired. Yeah. Another place that we want to talk about, what's so what we like so much about NDSM is that it really blurs those lines, right? Where's public, where's private, happens on this huge spectrum. Uh, also in the Netherlands, but in a different city, is a building that changes that, that gradient and makes it extremely clear. We're talking about the Marktal. It's in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. It was uh, done by a super famous Dutch design firm, MVRDV. And to give you an idea of what it looks like, it's essentially a big arch. It's around 12 stories tall, big arch, hollow in the center, kind of like a donut. In the arch all the way around, and it's a couple hundred feet long, are private apartments. If you think of like a bubble letter U, and then yeah. you flip it upside down. It's like that, yeah. but a building. So in the U are hundreds of private apartments, balconies. They, they look in and out. But in the center of the U, kind of enclosed at either end, is a public with glass. With glass. Yeah, so it's interior, is a public market space. So local restaurants, local, local grocers and butchers and coffee shops, all these places can rent out space kind of in the center of that U. And I think almost 24 hours a day, you can walk in and out. You can just pop in, grab some food, hang out there. All the while, in that, that arch above you are private apartments that you cannot access. Aren't there windows on the inside yeah, yeah. of the U so that the people in the apartment can see everything that's kind of going on? Yeah, exactly. You can look down onto that. So we think it's interesting because, like we said, the diagram between what's public and what's private is super clear. But they they kind of support each other, right? Like the public area could not be there if it wasn't sort of financed by the private stuff above. 
and the shape and form of that those private apartments wouldn't make any sense without kind of giving back the space underneath them to the public. It's also really crazy the whole design of it and how like we said the either side of this U shape is defined by glass. So this whole interior space it's so high up yeah it's got to be 100 feet above it's so tall it feels like and because both ends of it are clear it feels like you're still outside but it's this very ambiguous space because you know that you're inside but it's so high up and you can so clearly see everything on either end it still feels like you're existing out outside at your scale but then yet when you look up you do recognize that you're obviously inside of a building and there's all this private space around you looking down on you yeah, it's a really weird dichotomy, but it's super interesting. It makes itself it's really so, clear. It's so interesting, and you should definitely look it up if you get the chance. Like, it is just a wildly shaped building, and nothing like we have here in the U.S. Not at all. No. And that's what I think is so cool about the Netherlands in general, especially why I fell in love with Amsterdam when we visited, was because so many of the places had a, such an interesting and thoughtful way that they connected private and public, interior and exterior, who could use what, what was a monument, what was for the rich, and what was for people who were in affordable living. I agree. The Netherlands as like a society and as a government and as a culture had a clear idea of who belonged where, and that shared space was useful space, and people shouldn't be split apart because they make more money. Obviously, there are places for the rich in the Netherlands. That's We're not saying that's not true, but in so much of the public space, there was a, a, a great blurring, or at least a coexistence of the two. And another space in an incredible city that we both visited as well, even together, was the Tate Modern in London, which had a really beautiful way of a high quality public space. Yeah, so the Tate Modern, it's a contemporary art museum uh, designed by super famous uh, Swiss firm Herzog and de Muron. Uh, the building for a long time was a power plant on the Thames uh, and that shut down in the 80s and it sat empty and then eventually uh, the museum bought it and commissioned these architects and in 2001 it reopened to the public. And what's so, so great about the Tate is the, the original building is basically a long, skinny rectangle. And the center of it, uh, about four stories high, and a couple hundred feet long and maybe 50 feet wide, is open. It was the old turbine hall, for that's like where the huge turbines were that made power. And as a member of the public, when the museum's open, you can just walk in there. You don't need a ticket. It's completely free. And they stage these huge and beautiful art installations in that space. Uh, it's kind of their their featured space. And like I said, it's it's open to everyone. There are galleries above that, that you can pay to enter, uh, but there are also galleries that are free. So it totally mixes uh, mixes the idea of like, you know, you think of an art museum and it seems kind of stoic and private and, you know, something you go to as a, you know, kind of fancy. The Tate sort of throws that out. It's in an old power plant. It sure still looks like an old power plant. And you can just stroll in and see art by, like, really world-class people. Sorry, I'm looking at pictures of it, and it's <laughs> really great. My, the, my favorite one is by Doris. You should look up the installation by Doris Salcedo. She put a crack in the floor that appeared to, like, go forever oh, and wouldn't tell anyone how. She, like, swore the Tate to secrecy, and <gasps> people were like, what? How do you do that? What is it? And she's like, it's a crack. 
Go look at it. I won't tell you. Like it's an actual crack. It's just before. it's a true crack. Like and it gets it's wide and then gets skinny. Yeah, she's really amazing. This is crazy. I'm looking at photos of this and my mind is blown. Yeah. That's crazy. And it just like went. For what it's worth, Brian and I are both looking at a photo of someone with their head in the crack. We'll, we'll put it on the blog. So for about 10, 15 years, the, the Tate just rolled with its facilities in this uh, the existing building. And then they recommissioned the original architects to add an extension called the Switch House. Uh, it kind of hangs off the side of the building. Uh, it's a brick sort of square that turns as it goes up. It's about 14 stories tall, so not super tall by any means. Uh, full of galleries. Again, a lot of them are free. There's community spaces in there and some offices and stuff for for the museum. What's really great is on the 12th floor, there's a viewing platform. Uh, you can take an elevator up there. It's just a member of the public when the museum's open. And have you have a great 360-degree view of London. It's a, It's really beautiful. About a hundred yards away is a is maybe a twenty story building by another famous architect called Neo Bankside. Super rich apartments, ultra luxury, these amazing views of London, and they all have floor to ceiling glass. And you can see, as a member of the public standing on the balcony at Tate Modern, you can see right into these living rooms, and there expensive <laughs> there's this photo on this article that i'm looking at titled residents in luxury south bank flat sue tate modern over nosy to- tourists peering into windows from balcony and there's a sign in the tate that says please respect our neighbor's privacy it's a really good attempt yeah it's a good attempt because i mean you don't need binoculars you don't need any you don't need You're a right camera there. you can see if you look up photos you can see it's truly you can see through the apartments like it's a direct view and what's so interesting is that the public won this argument like the owners of these luxury apartments sue the museum for having their privacy what feels like totally invaded which you can totally understand by looking at these photos but the museum won and so just last week just last week and so the people were given back the power which brings us back to this whole idea of a few episodes ago when we were talking about the power of the gaze and how that totally invades this sense of even though your personal space is defined by these you know, numeric, you know, one foot, two foot distance away from you physically, how your ability to see someone kind of permeates all of that. Like it goes right through it. And it doesn't really matter how far you are at that rate. Who's watching who has a lot more to deal with who's in power of who. And so the fact that for once the public was put on top and then saw in and then was granted that authority is is usually unique. It's typically the the really rich people who are on top looking down are given the ability to see into others' lives. And and this time it was the public and, and they remain on top. Yeah, they and, and we're talking, you know, we've talked a lot about who the public is, what is the public. In this case, it truly is the public. You can just stroll right up to, top to this uh, viewing platform. And, as, you know, you talked earlier about the different skins as as you're in your you know rich dude in your apartment, the public can see past your fourth and third and second skins yeah. as you're just hanging out. Yeah. So now people can add that to their list of tourist attractions. It's like I want to go to London so I can go to the top of this museum for free and watch people. Yeah, I want to see that dude's living room. <laughs> so in the last place, or the second to last place, we want to talk about is the Seattle Central Library, in obviously in Seattle, publicly owned and publicly focused. 
it was designed and built by Rem House of the super famous Dutch firm. We really love the Dutch in this episode. We do really like the Dutch. Well, that's cool, fine. Uh, the Dutch are great. The Dutch are great. So yeah, Rem and uh, his firm OMA, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, they finished a building in 2004. Uh, to describe it, it's kind of a sh- uh, shifting rectangular floor plate with these angular glass connections. That's not a good description. To describe it, I don't know how to describe yeah. it. Oh, you know what it looks like? A sheet, the thing that you put cookies on to dry, to let them cool off? Maybe. Oh, I guess th- those all look different. Never mind. I would describe the building as like a faceted glass monolith. It's sort of like you took a big block and it's maybe, what, eight stories tall? Carved away chunks in different kind of, rec- you know, triangular and diamond shapes and then swathed the whole thing in, in like a gridded glass. Yeah, so all of the walls have these diamond shapes connecting to each other, sort of like a fence pattern, um, on these giant flat planes of glass, like Brian is describing. So it's a really funky shape. What's super cool about the building, so uh, Ram House and OMA, they think a lot about what architects call program and what normal people probably call like the different ways you use a building. So like what's a library versus a cafe versus a bathroom? Those are all different program types. So each floor on the library is uh, specifically designed to support a certain program type and let and allowed to be kind of the, the best version that that program requires. And then they're all just kind of stitched together. That creates these amazing like triple height overhung public spaces that again because it's a library it's open to everyone it's owned by the city you can go hang out and you have different connections across these different kind of tiers of space you all are underneath a kind of a shared canopy and it's kind of it's a it's a really elevated version of of the library like typology so rem when he was talking about the building he said that quote The spaces in between the platforms function as trading floors where librarians inform and stimulate, where the interface between the different platforms is organized. So he's really focusing on kind of those those in-between places, not the place really where you go check out a book, but where you go sit and read it and maybe you sit across from somebody you've never seen before or you just watch and, and have all these different auditory connections, visual connections, all these things. Yeah, I think it's important that all the emphasis was put on again those in between like where people are mixing where people are seeing one another where people are experiencing the point of the building and it's less so the focus being put on what can typically happen as like oh this is your space to read this is where you check out this is where the cafe is and blah 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 the space just looks so profound from the outside and typically places that look like that are not for the public so it's similar to what we were saying even last week when we were traveling around with Ivan is that the Boston Public Library like the old one that feeling of like this space is so ornate and crazy it's like this very profound space and it sort of doesn't feel like it's for you but it is and this does the same thing in a totally different way it's just like this very very incredibly profound and confusing but comfortable an incredible space for you to explore yes yeah, it's, it's the contemporary kind of celebrating the public yeah so those four places all kind of fit neatly for the most part into those three categories the last place we want to talk about is a is a building or and a collection of spaces that really that personifies all three versions of interior public space we're talking about the elb philharmony 
It's in Hamburg, Germany. And again, done by uh, these same architects, Herzog and Demiron, who did the Tate Modern. Uh, they finished it in, in just pretty recently, in 2017, for a staggering 700 million euros, which is about 10 times what they thought it was going to cost at first. So a lot of money. To describe the building, so Hamburg is in the north of Germany. It was an old, uh, it still is, a, a big shipping town. Uh, the base of the building, maybe about the first eight or nine stories, is a kind of a squat, triangular brick building. It used to be a, the warehouse for storing goods and things, and it's on the tip of this neighborhood, kind of juts out into the river in Hamburg. So that's the bottom and where you enter. At the top of that, there's a, a kind of a one-story zone uh, that separates the upper half of the building, which is this swooping glass uh, kind of floating volume uh, that kind of reaches towards the sky, reflects the sky and the and the river around it. it. Like I said, it's all covered in glass, contrasting with the brick below. And really, it does appear to kind of levitate on top of its base. Each side of this building goes directly straight up, and then the top of it has this really deep curves to it that kind of make it look like a wave yeah 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 it, it totally fits its surroundings it feels like at home with the sea but also somehow as if clouds could just rest upon yeah. it it's, it's really beautiful for people who live in boston it has the glass part on top has a similar effect as the john hancock yeah, with it its reflection of everything that's around it but the difference is that this whole glass piece appears to be like you said floating above this really heavy brick structure that's beneath it and so why we're interested in it for this episode is it has all three versions of space. So the super public version is the zone in between the brick and the glass. It's one story. It's a viewing platform for the public. When, for I think, 24-7, you can just take the, the uh, fancy curving escalator uh, up to this and have a beautiful view of the Port of Hamburg and the river and, and kind of enjoy this, this curated public space. In the glass volume floating above you is the Hamburg Philharmonic, which is why it's called the Elbe Philharmony, uh, which, while a, primarily a place for, for the wealthy and for the rich, is for a public. You can buy tickets and you can go and in, enjoy the orchestra and, and, and the Philharmonic. You can inhabit that space as just kind of anyone in the city of Hamburg. And then the rest of the building is either private apartments or a private hotel uh, that inhabits both the bricks structure underneath and the glass volume above kind of the rest of the space that the Philharmony doesn't take. What's so cool about this, which I think that we experienced a lot when we were traveling together, is that we would just go and we would be exploring all these places in these different countries and just like running around them. And a lot of them, especially this one, even though we didn't go to this one together, has this like the ability for anybody to just like go especially right in between sandwiched in between two major parts of a building and just to explore and not just explore but be provided this opportunity to see Hamburg in this case in a very beautiful way is a very inviting and again thoughtful way to design what is for the public into this like greater institution of a space. Yeah, we've talked about the way that the built environment kind of provides opportunities and excludes opportunities. And what's so amazing about this building is that it provides that opportunity. It places a kind of a beloved cultural institution at this prominent point in the city. 
it provides a space underneath that for for kind of the regular citizen of Hamburg or tourists like us and it it creates a 24/7 neighborhood by putting residences in there even if they are for the super wealthy uh, it it creates a lot of opportunity for a lot of different people in a varying uh, mix of ways yeah One of the things that Ivan mentioned when we were exploring with him after everything was done was how he was excited to explore more. After talking about all of this, I think that my biggest goal out of like why this episode was important was so that people would maybe listen to this and then want to start exploring places that had a level of the public in it. And that even though at first, like you might not think it's that important or that much for you. Like last week, MIT, it's like, oh, well, why would I want to just like go run around someone's campus? And it's like, because some of those spaces were designed for the public and it can be very profound just for you to run around it. And I think sometimes like not having, I don't know, your architecture friend to be like, let's go look at this building because I think it's cool. Like, just go do it. Just like go run around space that wasn't, that you didn't think was yours and to begin with. And yeah, like, if you have to, you know, do some work on the weekend, just go to a place that, you know, isn't your couch or... Go to these random places, try to get to the top try to go to the top roof see how high you can get up you can find the coolest stuff just by exploring random places and even though they're openly for the public i think a lot of them are in a sense hidden because just people don't think about it as being theirs yeah. don't break into places though we didn't tell you to do that we didn't tell you to break into places. <laughs> <laughs> what builds us is brought to you by unexpected puddles are you tired of having warm, dry shoes? Wouldn't it be nicer to fill your shoes with slush? Well, thanks to unexpected puddles, you can! Find them on most sidewalks if you're distracted as you walk. Unexpected puddles! Want to share your own gripe with life or help support the show in other ways? You can send us an email at info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. Our Instagram, which is where you can find so many photos of everything that we just talked about, is coalesce.design. And our website is coalescedesign.org slash whatbuildsus, where you can find a blog post about, again, information of everything that we talked about. We threw a lot at you this week, and so if you want to look into anything more, definitely check out our website. What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Brian Sanford and Chantel Trombley. Mixing and editing by Chantel. Mastering and music by Will Gooding. You can find more music from him at thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. Look forward to next week where we move from talking about interior public spaces to more of the spaces between buildings with Katrina Zimmerman, who you heard earlier on episode three, going to give us a much better idea of who she is. Yeah, you don't want to miss it. See you then. See you then.